morning will be in Numbers chapter 19, so you would do well to follow along in your Bible to see if what I have to say is true. It's from the word Numbers chapter 19. Numbers 19 is about the cleansing ritual that is necessary for when a person comes into contact with a dead body. Necessary for the Old Testament um, Israelite. And the importance of this cleansing ritual for them cannot be overstated because within the next 38 years, one million of their people will die. That's about 25,000 people per year, which means every year about 25 to 3% of their population is going to die. Compare that to um, our population here in Michigan, we lose about 1% per year out of the 10 million people. Uh, we lose about 100,000 people every year. So 1% in comparison to their 2 to 3%. To put that in perspective, to see how much death was going to be prevalent for them, consider for yourself over the last 40 years of your life. Do you know anyone in Michigan who has died during that time period? Have you been in the same room with someone who has died? Have you been to a funeral home? How many times would you have had to be ceremonially cleansed if we were still under the law of Moses? Take the number of times that you have been contaminated, in that sense, ritually, by a dead person, and multiply that by two or three times, and that's what Israel has to experience over the next 40 years. That is, that their close family and friends are going to die over the next course, uh, over the next four decades. And in some cases, an Israelite would be in the same room as someone who died, or they would have have to help transport the body, or they would walk into a room where someone had just died. They might touch someone else who is unclean. And in every case, there had to be a way that they could be restored to fellowship with God, because God would not allow either sin or uncleanness into his presence. And in this case, it's uncleanness, contamination of a dead body. So God, if they were going to be restored to fellowship with God, God would have to provide a way. And God did provide a way. For them, they already knew from Leviticus and the laws that were given there that they could bring an individual sacrifice. But imagine how expensive that would be for an individual family. Right? If, if you have a whole family group and grandpa dies in the tent where they're living, then every single person has to be cleansed. Every per- single person has to bring a sacrifice. And so here in chapter 19, God provides an economical way to cleanse each person while not minimizing the importance of cleansing and purification, but he provides a, a much cheaper, easier way for them to do that. And this chapter describes how it's made and how it's used. So let me read uh, the text for us, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the statute of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel that they bring you an unblemished red heifer in which is no defect on which a yoke has never been placed. You shall give it to Eleazar the priest, and it shall be brought outside the camp and be slaughtered in his presence. Next, Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. 
Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its hide and its flesh, its blood with its refuse shall be burned. The priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet material and cast it into the midst of the burning heifer. The priest shall then wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward come into the camp. But the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns it shall also wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water and shall be unclean until evening. Now a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place and the congregation of the sons of Israel shall keep it as water to remove impurity. It is purification from sin. The one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening and it shall be a perpetual statute to the sons of Israel and to the alien who sojourns among them. We'll stop there. Here in this chapter, God is providing the cleansing that they need to fellowship with Him. And what we're going to see in relation to that, or in, uh, in a similar way, God provides the cleansing that we need to fellowship with Him. That is that God makes it possible for the people to come near to the tabernacle without dying. And He does this through this water of purification. They couldn't just come into the tabernacle unauthorized. We saw that in chapters 16 through 18 when Korah and Dathan Dathan and Abiram tried to do this. They had to come on God's terms. And this is the same thing with any person who came into contact with a dead body. And so in order to understand the value of this water of purification, we need to see how it was properly made, which is what we just read, verses 1 through 10, And then we need to see how it was properly used. And that's what we'll see in verses 11 through 22. So that's basically the outline for today. Making the water of purification and using the water of purification. So first, making the water of purification, verses 1 through 10. God is doing two things with this water of purification or the water for impurity. He is protecting the, the tabernacle from defilement and He is providing a way we could say he's protecting the people from being shut out from fellowship with him. So he's protecting the tabernacle from defilement and he's giving them a way to have fellowship with him, even though they have been defiled by the filth of, a, uh, of, of living in a sin-cursed world. Right? Part of living in a sin-cursed world means that we're going to come into contact with a dead body at times. Sometimes because we're there to help, sometimes because we couldn't avoid it. It's just the nature of life that we have to experience death around us and death ourselves. But the fact is that God has to be the one who provides a way for us to be able to come into fellowship with Him. And for Israel, it actually prevented them from coming into contact with Him. Prevented them from coming into His presence. And so He had to provide the way for them to have a bridge, essentially, between Him and they. And them. So notice first in verse 1, the author of purification. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses. So this is God who initiates the cleansing. It's not that they know that they're unclean and God, we need to have some way, so we're, we're, we're asking you. No, God is the one who knows that they need the cleansing and He provides the way. Second, we notice in verse 2, the object to be sacrificed is a red heifer, probably a reddish brown cow, young cow. It hasn't been yoked, it says, which means it's probably strong and, um, and would be worth a lot of money if they were to sell it. But the point is that this is the animal that was going to be used. It's not clear if the red heifer has any connection to 
to what's being done here, that there's some kind of blood being shed, um, that is, that, that this is some kind of a symbol to show that this, something has to die in order for them to be purified, in order for this water of purification to be made. But in order for this water to be made, first this red cow had to die. The agent of purification is found at the beginning of verse 3. You shall give it to Eleazar the priest. Eleazar was the one who's going to, to get the ashes together. Someone else is going to make the water of purification. But he was going to, to burn this cow, to sacrifice this cow. And this is important that Eleazar is doing this because um, he's actually going to become unclean from this process. Because he's involved in the process, he's actually becoming unclean. And everyone involved in the process becomes unclean for a period of time as well. In order uh, for Aaron to continue on with his high priestly work, he, is, he, is, um, uh, he, he, he doesn't have to do this job. right? Eleazar, another one of the priests, was able to do, do the job. So this frees up Aaron from, from the, the defilement that would come from this sacrifice. At the beginning of verse 3, or the end of verse 3, we see the process. And the process is such that the young cow was taken outside the camp where he would be slaughtered and burned up completely. And when this fire would be going on, then cedar and hyssop and scarlet material would be added to the burnt offering according to verse 6. And then in verse 9, notice what happens. Now a man who is clean, so this is talking about ceremonially or ritually clean, someone who is not defiled, someone who could actually go into the presence of the tabernacle. This is a Levite or a priest. A man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp. So someone else had to come along because Eleazar actually has become unclean through this process. Someone else comes along, gathers up the ashes, and he, notice in the middle of the verse says, um, gathers them and deposits them outside the camp in a clean place and the congregation of the sons of Israel shall keep it as water to remove impurity. So they would take the ashes from this sacrifice, this red cow, and they would um, combine it with some water, some flowing water as we'll see later, and, and that would make this water purification. But notice um, in verses 7, 8, and 10 we see the defilement that takes place during the process. In verses 7 and 8, the priest and anyone who worked with the sacrifice had to wash themselves and their clothes and they would be unclean until evening. And then the same thing is true in verse 10 about the man who gathers the ashes. So everyone involved in this process becomes unclean. So this is a lot of work that goes into creating this water of purification. But remember, it's useful for the people because death is going to be all around them. And it's going to be necessary for them to be in a right standing with God, ceremonially clean. And they're going to need something that's going to, to purify them ritually. And so, despite the amount of work and the amount of money that was involved in this process, it was worth it. So, the making of the water of purification, verses 1-10. through 10, And then, verses 11-22. through 22, is the using the water of purification. We see a general statement about the water and its use in verse 11. The one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days, and that one shall purify himself from uncleanness with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and the seventh day, he will not be clean. 
Anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died, and does not purify himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel, because the water for impurity was not sprinkled on him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. So here we have a general statement of how the water of purification was used and why it was used. Do you remember the story from chapter 17 when Aaron's staff budded, showed that he was the authorized mediator between the people and God? Do you remember what the people asked at the end of that? They said, are we all going to die? In other words, if Aaron can come into your presence and he's been authorized to do that, and we've seen through example that Dathan... Dathan and Abiram and Korah and his family can't come into your presence, then who can? How can we possibly ever have authorized worship? They recognize that they have no chance. How could they possibly come into the presence of God? Particularly if you consider the nature of uncleanness. Ceremonial uncleanness doesn't just go away on its own. Did you notice that in verse 11? In verse 11 it says, uh, that you're unclean for seven days, but there's there's a huge uh, there's a huge qualification there, a stipulation. That is that you have to have this water of purification. It's not like if you just wait out the seven days, you automatically become clean. Because at the end of verse 11, it says, if you don't take the water of purification, then you will not be clean. And if you're not clean, verse 12, you're going to be cut off from the people. So this clean this ceremonial cleanliness, cleanness does not just happen on its own. It doesn't just get waved away with a magic wand. It doesn't get covered over by a good deed. You know, someone who comes into contact with a dead body, well, then he does something good for his neighbor, and so now it's all covered, and God looks over it. No, it stays on the person until he ceremonially cleanses himself. And, in fact, it actually spreads to other people so that if I came into the contact with a dead body and didn't become ceremonially cleaned, then I go and touch someone else. I actually make them unclean. And that's the nature of, of the, the defilement in the Old Testament, that it actually spreads, and it spreads very easily. So here, God provides a clear and always available way for a defiled person to be cleansed, to be restored to fellowship. When I say defiled person, I mean defiled by touching a dead body or defiled by being in the same room as someone who died. Defilement and uncleanness need to be cleansed. Sin needs to be forgiven. So do you understand the difference? We'll talk about that more at the end. But there's a difference between defilement, that is uncleanness, and sin. And um, so just keep that in mind as, as you're thinking through some of these things. There's nothing inherently sinful about touching a dead body unless God specifically said don't touch it. But, but the, the, there is something that prevents you from coming into the presence of God if you're an Old Testament Jew. Well, the water of purification was there to, to cleanse them and they had to apply it on the third and the seventh day according to verse 12. But a person who failed to do this would be cut off from God's people. So there's a general statement about how the water of purification is used. And then there's a detailed explanation in verses 14 through 22. In verses 14 to 16, we see the means of ritual defilement, that when someone dies in a tent, everyone in the tent at the time and everyone who comes into the tent is unclean for seven days. 
And in addition to that, verse 15, every open pot or jar that you have that's not sealed, that also becomes ritually unclean and needs to be cleansed. cannot be used again until it's ceremonially cleansed. Verse 16 says that a person who touches a dead body in the field is also unclean for seven days. And the point is that this is going to happen over and over and over again throughout their 40 years. So they needed to know how to to come back into fellowship with God. The method of purification is found in verses 17 through 19, more detailed. The ashes from the red cow sacrifices are added to spring water. Verse 17, notice, Then for the unclean person they shall take some of the ashes of the burnt purification from sin, and flowing water shall be added to them in a vessel. So the two of them combined is what they would use. Again, there's nothing magical about this potion. Um, this is this is not uh, something that's, that's brewed up in that way. Rather, uh, this is something that God requires, that something has to die. In this case, probably symbolic that it's a red cow, uh, along with this hyssop and, and other things. Um, and, and it was added to the water, and it was... It was sprinkled on the people, and it was also sprinkled on the tent so that the tent, the tabernacle would not be defiled and their individual homes would not be defiled. This was done on the thir- third and the seventh day, as we see again in verse 19. Notice who can administer the water of purification. We would expect it would be a priest or a Levite, right? Who, who has the authorization to, to administer this water of purification? But notice who can in verse 18. A clean person. So very generic. Someone who is ritually clean, someone who is ceremonially clean, anyone can get access to this water of purification. Now, they can't make the water of purification themselves. The priest has to do that. Eleazar and his family would have to do that. But, but anyone could do this. And so, again, this made the, the, the peace that the people would have with God much more simple. It wouldn't, they wouldn't have to go through all these... Um, Difficult circumstances in order to be um, brought back into fellowship with God. God made it much easier. Verses 20 through 22 show the danger of ignoring this purification ritual. Verse 20 says, The man who is unclean and does not purify himself from uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of, for, for impurity has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. So this is a guy who knows that he's touched a dead body or he's become defiled in some way with regard to a dead body and he doesn't care about becoming ritually clean and he comes to the tabernacle anyway. In the process, he's defiled the tabernacle and God says, you're cut off from my people. And as I've talked about before, to be cut off could be that he's excommunicated from the nation of Israel. He's removed as, as a covenant member of society or it could be that God actually kills him. He brings him premature death and that's what I think being cut off means in the Old Testament. Um, But whatever the case is, it's a serious offense. It's a high-handed sin against God saying, I'm not going to use your means of purification. I'm not concerned with those things. And while there are warnings in this passage and there's much talk of death, we have to keep in mind that there is a focus here on the purification itself. Notice verse 21. So it shall be a perpetual statute for them and he who sprinkles the water for impurity shall wash his clothes, and he who touches the water for impurity shall be unclean until evening. So 
we might want to be focusing on the death and the being the cut off and, and what happens when we ignore the, the, the commands. The focus ought to be on God providing a way for His people to be restored to fellowship. That's the main point. One final item that we need to notice in verse 22 is that defilement is contagious. Furthermore, anything that the unclean per- person touches shall be unclean, and the person who touches it shall be unclean until evening. So this uncleanness spread very easily if it wasn't taken care of. Again, the, per- the reason why this water of purification is so important, that it spreads from defiled person to a clean person, making the clean person unclean. And so it's critical that this is taken care of because no one would be able to come into the presence of the Lord if this spread continued to spread. If people were not concerned about this. So we've had a lot of talk about something that really doesn't apply to us at all. So let me conclude by answering three questions. First, let me give you the questions and I'll answer them. First question is, what's the difference between uncleanness and sin? I touched on this briefly, but we'll look at it a little bit more closely. The difference between uncleanness and sin. Secondly, why does God care about uncleanness? And thirdly, what can we learn from this? So first, what is the difference between uncleanness and sin? Now, it's true that it it would be sin for the people to ignore God's requirements regarding the laws of purification. That after they touched the dead body, that they didn't do anything about it. That would be sinful. But but the point is, is what, what makes touching a dead body sinful. There's nothing inherently sinful about touching the body, right? I mean, think of the other things that would make a person unclean ceremonially in the Old Testament. Eating various kinds of animals. Anything inherently sinful about those things besides the fact that God said not to? Anything inherently sinful about eating uh, ham? Right? How about giving birth? Right? Giving birth actually made a woman unclean. For seven, 14 days, depending on which gender baby she had. How about an infectious skin disease? Anything inherently sinful about obtaining some kind of infectious skin disease? How about bodily discharges? These are all things in Leviticus 17 through 19 that make a person ceremonially unclean. And so what was it that, that distinguished something that was unclean from something that was sinful? The point is that no matter which one it was, something that was sinful or something that made you unclean, both of them prevented a person from entering into the presence of God. And so we need to recognize that a person in Israel could be in one of three states. He could be holy, he could be clean, or he could be unclean. That is, that an unclean person could be morally upright, but ritually he would have been unable to participate in acts of worship. So consider a righteous leper. Someone who loved God and loved His laws and wanted to obey God's laws and was obeying God's laws and trusted in God with all of his heart and with all of his heart and loved his neighbor. Yet he could never come into the presence of God because he was ritually unclean. He had to stay outside the camp. So there you have an unclean person who's outside, externally unclean, but internally he's morally upright, he's holy. Secondly, you have a person who could be clean on the outside, but inside is morally corrupt. A person with no infectious skin disease, a person who had not touched a dead body recently, 
right? No chronic bodily discharges. And yet he could, on the outside, offer all the proper sacrifices. And yet in his heart, he was far from God. And then you have a third kind of person, which is a holy person. That is a person who on the inside was was morally upright, loving God, and on the external, he was also ritually clean. His heart was right with God. And those three states actually highlight for us the the inadequacy of the Old Testament sacrificial system. That is, that Old Testament sacrifices could never cleanse a person both inside and out, could they? They could only cleanse a person on the outside. And there's only one person who can actually cleanse a person on the inside. And that is the promised Redeemer, Christ. We'll get to that here when we get to the third question, what we we can learn from this. But, But recognize that there is a difference between uncleanness and sin. Uncleanness has to be cleansed. Sin has to be atoned for. It has to be forgiven. And there are sacrifices for both. So, question number two. If uncleanness is not sin, then why does God care about uncleanness? Why does God demand that, we, that, that an Old Testament Israelite be ritually clean if it's all about the heart? Again, there's nothing inherently sinful about eating certain kinds of animals. Or touching a dead body in and of itself. It seems that God simply chose to make this distinction and hold Israel to it. It wasn't that it made them more holy in the sense that that this meat kind of like spiritualized for them. The clean meat. So, So why cut off someone who violates these laws? And I think God was teaching Israel three things. First, God demands that he be approached on his terms. God was teaching Israel three things. We'll be able to learn from these as well. That God demands that he be approached on his terms. That is that a person who comes to God must come with a proper heart, with proper sacrifices, proper cleanness, and through the proper channel, the priest. You can't just come on your own terms. We saw that with, with uh, Dathan, Dathan and Abiram and Korah and, and their friends. You can't just come to God on your own terms. You have to come on God's terms. Secondly, laws regarding uncleanness taught Israel that their enemy is death. Taught Israel that that their enemy is death. And I think God was using the reality of death to show them that what goes against the created order is their enemy. To show them what came as a result of the curse. To show them that what He is doing to, to overcome their enemy they needed to see this. That He is providing cleansing and fellowship to their greatest enemy. Which is death that results from our sin. And then thirdly, laws regarding uncleanness taught Israel to keep out because they were unclean. Israel, you cannot come near to God because you are unclean. So, God does care about cleanness. That is ritual cleanness in the Old Testament. And I think he did that in order for us to show something about his own character, that he must be approached on his terms, that there is something about death that we all must hate. And then that, that, that for Israel, they had to stay out because they were unclean. So what can we learn from this? Three things for us as well. First, 
there is great value in intended symbolism. I added that word intended because I, I don't want you to be searching for things that aren't there. But, but what I'm considering here are symbolisms within our church. So I'm not calling for you to look at things that aren't there or that were never intended, but think about the intended symbolism behind what we do as a church. I mean, you might look at some of the things we do during the service as rituals. And, and, and um, maybe that's not the best way to put it because rituals tend to have a, a negative connotation. But, but consider the things that we do at our church and think about the sim- symbolism behind them. Because everything that God has designed, particularly with regard to how we worship and what we do here, is for a purpose. That is, that it points to something greater. So consider, consider the symbolism of the two ordinances that we observe here at our church, which are the ordinances of what? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay, so what kind of symbolism is there in baptism? I mean, what are we trying to portray when we take somebody and sub- submerge them, immerse them in the water, and then bring them back up? I mean, there, there is a symbolism there for a reason, and the reason that we do that is not because we invented it. It's because Christ uh, designed it and in- instituted it. Same thing with the Lord's Supper. Why is it that we, we meet once a month to, to eat these little wafers together? What, what does that symbolize? And what about the, 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 the grape juice? What does that symbolize for us as well? I mean, there, there are symbols here that we ought to see. We ought to see these intended symbols. And I think to, to relate this to our text, they would recognize every time that they were sprinkled with the water of purification that something had to die, particularly a red cow mixed with these other elements like the scarlet material that were, would remind them that there had to be some kind of payment made in order for them to come into fellowship with God. See, that these things were all designed for them to see these symbols. And I'm suggesting that we have symbols here at our church that we ought to see as well. What about the symbolism? Maybe you haven't thought about the, the structure of this building or the structure of this room. Have you ever considered that the pulpit is front and center? That, that has not always been the way that it was in churches. Like there are a lot of churches you can go to today where the pulpit is off to the side or way high up. And, and the fact that ours is fairly low to the ground and that it's in the center says something. Not about who's standing behind it, but about what's most important for our worship service. And that is that we hear from God. That the preaching is central to what we do. That the reason that we meet is so that we can hear God speak. So we open the word every time we come together. The pulpit is front and center for that reason. What about the order of our service? Have you considered what takes the most amount of time as you're trying to wake back up here? (laughs) I know what takes the most amount of time. The preaching. And again, that's because the preaching is at the center of what we do as a church. It is hearing from God and responding to His word. Certainly we take some time for prayer and praise and giving. But, but the most central feature of what we do as a church is the preaching of God's Word. And that's historically been the case in, in um, churches that are committed to the work of God. So recognize the intended symbolism that we have as a church. Secondly, 
recognize that God is holy and he demands our holiness. For us, holiness or the ability to come into God's presence does not come through ritual cleanness. Jesus has torn down the barriers that divided the Jews from the rest of the world. No food is unclean for us. We don't have a purification ritual when we touch a dead body or come into the house or a hospital of a dead body. You see, Jesus fulfilled all that the law required. He made obsolete the need for us to come to a physical place in order to meet with God. We don't have to meet with God here in this room, you recognize. We can still meet with God some other place. And Jesus provided a way for us to do that. He covered our external uncleanness. And that leads to our second truth that we can learn. Our third truth, excuse me. And that is that we have abundant grace through Jesus Christ. Would you turn to Hebrews chapter 9? We'll finish here. Hebrews chapter 9. The Old Testament tabernacle was effectively fronted with a sign that read, You are unclean. Keep out. You need to be ritually clean. Come with a sacrifice. But when Jesus came, He called people to come near, and I will make you clean. What a huge chore it was for Israel to be cleansed after they had come into contact with their enemy death. And yet God mercifully provided a simpler way for them to be cleansed through this water of purification so that they could have fellowship with Him. Have you considered how much easier it is for us to have fellowship with God? That through Jesus, we don't have to go through a bunch of difficult hoops. We don't have to go to a one place in the entire nation so that we can worship like they did to get cleansing. We have Jesus and we have ready and available access like that water purification that was just ready whenever someone needed it. We have Jesus who is always ready and available to give us cleansing and forgiveness. Not just once when we come to salvation, but ongoingly. And for us, we are cleansed more than just on the outside. You see, that's why the Old Testament sacrificial system was inadequate. It only cleansed a person on the outside. And even the blood of bulls and goats that provided atonement for their sins was not permanent, was it? Because the blood of bulls and goats cannot permanently take away sins. But not so with Jesus. Notice chapter 9 of Hebrews, verses 13 through 15. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. So there we have a direct correlation between our passage in Numbers 19 to us. So if it did all those things, it brought cleansing for the flesh. Notice verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience? Do you notice? It's more than just cleansing us externally, making us available to come into the presence of God. It actually cleanses our conscience, which the Old Testament sacrificial system could never do. Verse 15, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Christ is the perfect sacrifice necessary to cleanse those who are unclean. 
The person who prepared the purification water had to be clean because he, he, he became unclean when he went through the process. But Jesus, he fulfills all of those requirements of the Old Testament laws. That is that he's not only the sacrifice like the red heifer that provides the water of purification, but he also is the one who prepares it as well. He's the priest who actually offers the sacrifice of himself. It's kind of mixed metaphors there. The purification water made it possible for a defiled person to enter the tabernacle, but the blood of Jesus makes it possible for us to make it into heaven, the greater tabernacle. The purification water cleanses a person externally while the blood of Jesus cleanses a person both externally and internally. It took a lot of work for Eleazar and his helpers to make the water of purification. And every time that it was applied, it should have been a reminder to the people that something had to die in order for them to be cleansed. And I think the same is true for us. That while our cleansing is free and available, that is, we can come to God and ask for and receive forgiveness. That that the forgiveness of God flows like a rushing river It was not free to Christ. It cost Him His life, didn't it? And so every time we go to the well of forgiveness, we ought to be reminded of the price that was paid in order for us to receive that. And so as we come to God for forgiveness, we should constantly be reminded of the great sacrifice that was made so that we could be purified both externally and internally. Let's pray. Father, thankful for your word. Thankful that you have created clear symbolism in um, much of what we do here as a church. But, Lord, the greatest symbolism that, that we can learn from today is that we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And that we need to be cleansed internally. The greatest problem that we had in coming into your presence was our hearts. They're, they're wicked. They deserve your just wrath. And so we need someone to to take the wrath that should have come upon us. We need someone to cleanse our sins. And Jesus is that one. Lord, how many times do we dip into the well of forgiveness and, and not even think about the cost that it was for our Savior. That our sins um, brought about His death. It was my sin that held Him there. And... Um, Lord, we're thankful for, for His sacrifice. Remind us freshly of Your demand that we come on Your terms, that we come to You on Your terms. And then also give us the, the, um, the thought, the, the remembrance to be able to, to think about the fact that You are our great provider and redeemer. That Jesus Christ is the one who paid the price so that we could have life. Praise You for that in Jesus' name. Amen.